Well, in the movie Spokey and the Bandit, there's the song that says we've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. So that is true of us this morning. So take your Bibles and go to 1 Timothy. I am going to finish up looking at verses 8 to 17 this morning. And uh, the idea of the law and the gospel and then Jesus Christ. And we've been looking at, really, the last couple of weeks, even last week as we celebrated the Lord's Table, the role of the law. And last week, we very quickly learned about legalism, right? And we said that legalism is the excessive and improper use of the law. And that legalism can take different forms. There's three forms. The number one form is when a person attempts to keep the law in order to attain salvation, And every one of us have encountered that, either personally or from somebody else. Well, I might not be perfect, but I think I'm good enough. I think my good will outweigh my bad. I'm hoping that when I go before God and the weigh scales are out, that my good tips the balances in my favor. And so some people attempt to live life. I'll try keep enough of the rules, and it'll make me good with God. Last week, we also learned uh, the second reason, and that it's an issue in this church. Me, us, have either dealt with this today even, definitely this past week, where a person attempts to keep the law in order to maintain his salvation. In other words, we come to Christ and we recognize that we're sinners and we ask Jesus to save us, but then somehow we think, now it's on me to keep it. And so give me a list of do's and don'ts, give me a checklist, and I'll maintain my salvation. The third form of legalism, which again let's make it personal, is inside this, these four walls, is when Christians judge other Christians for not keeping, now notice these words, certain codes of conduct. Certain codes of conduct, often um, standards or things that we do. And again, I don't think my daughter's here, right? My daughter's not here. She's in the nursery, so I can talk about her. All right, I remember when... Abby first went to her first sleepover. And in our family, as a rule, we kind of hold hands before we pray, okay? So if you come to our house in the near future and one of my adult sons or I reach out and grab your hand, don't panic. That's just what we do, all right? We're not trying to uh, make you uncomfortable or anything, but we do that. And I remember when Abby went on her first sleepover, she went over to a friend's house. She comes back the next day. I pick her up and we're driving home. And I said, so what was it like, your first sleepover? And she looks at me and she goes, Dad. They don't hold hands in that house. And she said it with this sense of, they're less of a family than we are. Okay? This, this is what we do. Some people are legalistic because they judge other Christians who don't keep a certain code of conduct that he thinks needs to be observed. Now, last week we looked very quickly that when you take on this form of legalism... When you either try to earn your way into, the, into, God, into salvation or to be right with God, or you try to maintain your salvation and be right with God, or you try to compare each other so you feel good about yourself for those that you're better than, and then you feel you want to avoid those who you think are better than you, what happens is you end up either in one of two positions, right? You either end up defeated, so you just your attitude is, you know what? I can't keep the law. I can't do it, so why even bother? I, re- I remember this because this was the form of my salvation. Over time, I'll share that with you. But I was redeemed by Jesus Christ out of the defeatism of trying to obey all the rules. 
And my attitude was, I cannot do it. I'm just too bad. So since I'm too bad, I'll just be as bad as I can be. Why bother? Why bother? I just didn't want to keep up the game. I didn't want to do the charade. The charade was exhausting. But other people play legalism, and you'd, if you're not end up defeated, you end up delusional. You end up delusional. You think you're okay. You actually think you've got it all together. You might not be perfect, but some of you think you are. And in fact, maybe some of you have met someone like that. I have. And the truth is, I've been both defeated and delusional. Because there were times when I had good weeks or good months or a good run, and I really thought I was doing good. Me and Jesus, we were tight. But you think then that you have the right to speak in everybody's life. You think that you are trying and you've got all these verses and that spiritual jargon. And remember I said last week, the problem with being a Pharisee, the problem with being a Pharisee is you can always see another one, but you never see it in yourself. That's how you'll know if you're a Pharisee. If you don't think you are one, you likely are one. Okay? Now, let me begin by proving it a little bit in just for those of us that claim to be Christians, just how easy it is for us to assume about God's Word. Without looking, and before Steve puts it on the screen, how many of you, when I say these words, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, how many of you already know what verses I'm going to quote? Put your hand up. When I say Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, I got one taker in the back, it's like an auction. Someone's, I'm not going to make you quote it, so, all right? so even if you're guessing that you know, put your hand up nice and high for me. All right, one, two, three, four. All right, so I'll start the word. Don't put it up yet, Steve. I'll start the, the words. Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, Jesus says, Come unto me. Now, how many of you know where I'm going? Now put your hands up. There you go. See that? Almost 50% of the room already knows what I'm about to quote. And you know what? A lot of us approach God's word this way. But now he'll put it on the screen. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But how many of you ever stop and think about what you've just read? Or you've already assumed you know what it means? See, when Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, if you come to him, this is not a verse that says, You know, I've had a really hard week this week, so I'm going to go to Jesus and lay my burdens down. No, no, no. Jesus is saying, All who labor and are heavy laden, all of you that are aware, that will admit, I'm junk filled. I am weighed down with my self-righteousness, my sinfulness, my attempts at pleasing you, my attempts at performance. My, I'm just burdened. I'm exhausted under the weight and tyranny of trying to figure out how to have peace in life. He says, I want you to come to me. But to come to him, to even have this to be a really nice invitation, a powerful invitation, you've got to own it. Why, if you go to Jesus, you don't just go to Jesus and say, Hey, Jesus, I'm here. I have no idea why, but I'm here. No, you've got to come to Jesus. In fact, how many times in the Gospels did people come to Jesus and Jesus said, Why are you here? Why are you here? And when they didn't, and when they played games such as the rich young ruler who said, why, What must I do to have eternal life? Jesus carefully grafted them along to, No, let's get to the real reason why you're here. And it was the person who was willing to own their junk. This is the one who would come to Jesus and it says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. This is not, okay, come to Jesus and everything will be right. 
Come to Jesus. And say, he says, take my yoke, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Notice he doesn't say, you will find rest from your circumstances. He doesn't say, come unto me, all that labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, learn from me, and I will rid you of your whatever. And so often as Christians, we treat Jesus like the opposite of country music. Have you ever heard that joke? What do you get when you play country music backwards? You get your dog back, you get your truck back, you get your house back, you get your wife back, right? Because all country music is the same, right? It's just, I've lost my truck, I've lost my dog, I've lost my girl, I've lost my house or whatever. And if you play it backwards, you get it all back. So many people think, I come to Jesus and he just gives me everything back. Even in evangelical, conservative, reformed churches, we often treat Jesus like we've won the lottery, like he's a piggy bank or an ATM machine. That's not what Jesus says here. And so this is what I want you to understand, how easy it is for us to become defeated or delusional. And so let's look at our passage one more time. First Timothy chapter 1, notice at verse 8, Timothy hears these words, reads these words from Paul. It was a discussion they had, and he says, Now we know, Timothy, remember Tim, we know this. We know that the law is good. Now again, complete sentence is, Now we know that the law is good. Go all the way down to verse 11 is actually the sentence. We know that the law is good in accordance with the glory of the gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. He puts a parenthesis from the last part of verse 8 and verse 9 and 10. So now we know that the law is good in accordance with the gospel. But Tim, here's what they're doing at Ephesus. They're not using it lawfully. Because the law used lawfully is understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and for profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, which is all sexual immorality, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel, of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now you can see now from there, Tim totally changes, or Paul totally changes gears. Verse 12. I thank him. Who? Him who has given me strength. Well, who's that? Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Again, if you write in your Bible, underline verse 14, and maybe in the margin, write in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Because when Timothy hears these words from Paul, when he says, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, it's all a package. He doesn't say that grace came and then I have faith and love. No, the faith and the love and the grace all comes from Jesus. And then he says, verse 15, Tim, this saying is trustworthy. He's saying, pay attention. This is the equivalent of when Jesus would say in the Gospels, verily, verily, in the old King James, or truly I say to you, or or, behold, listen. This is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. 
But Tim, remember, I received mercy for this reason. And it's the reason you received mercy. And if you're here and you're a Christian, this is the reason you received mercy. That in me as the foremost sinner, he's basically saying, listen, I am the bar by which all sinners are measured. Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then I love it. As I said last week, then Peter becomes all Southern gospel. He gets his hanky out. He starts waving it. The banjo strikes. The mandolin goes. I mean, it gets crazy. He goes, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Have you ever walked with Jesus? Have you ever had a private devotions? Have you ever had something happen and God just so overwhelmed you with his goodness? You were just awestruck. Or when was the last time you had that experience with God? And so this morning, I want, to real, I want you to realize with me what we've talked about for the last two weeks. The law, which is the focus of verses 8 through 11. The law, what it is meant to do. What is the law meant to do? Because the law is good if it's used lawfully. So the law is meant to do a few things, all right? These people at Ephesus, the pastors, the elders, the leadership, and indeed the entire church body, they were adding to the Word of God. They were chasing after stuff. Remember in verses 1 through 7, they were chasing after stuff and ideas and questions that we know not or we don't need to know. And that's funny to me because isn't that the way Satan attacked Eve? Isn't that how Satan got Eve? Trying to get her interested in stuff that she say, he said she didn't know but could know and stuff she didn't need to know? You remember back there in Genesis? God only had one rule for Adam and Eve. Don't touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve was out looking at it. Remember, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. She looks at the tree and it's pleasant to look at. And then Satan comes and what does Satan say to her? Why don't you eat this? And she quotes it. We're not supposed to do this. And he says, no, 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 listen. If you do this, you will become God. You will have knowledge of good and evil. He tempts her. He deceives her with the idea that if you will do this, you will be God. Okay? And so here's the thing. We're called to be like God. We're not called to be God. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. But the Ephesian church were taking the Bible, taking the law, taking the Old Testament, and they were trying to find deeper things in it. They were trying to find out if there was something they should know that nobody else knew. They were trying to be God. And in trying to be like God, they actually started to worship themselves instead of... In fact, in some people... And you know what? It's a thing here. If I get on my soapbox again, some people actually worship the Bible. They make an idol out of the Bible. And what I mean by that is even translations or versions or so on and so forth instead of being subservient to the God of the Bible. Okay? This is God's Word. We worship God's Word as this is out from God, not because this is somehow equal to God in some weird thing that we have an option. I can worship God or this. No, no, no. To obey this is to worship God. To know God's Word is to worship God. And so we can sometimes think that the law can save us, and that's wrong. And so what is the law meant to do? Well, there's four things. Very quickly, the law is meant to, number one, inform us. The law is meant to inform us. When you read God's Word, you get informed about what God wants and doesn't want. We are informed of His expectations for us, what He is like, 
the law tells us what's really wrong with us, what's wrong with the world and its systems and its views. The law restrains us. God put government in place. And we, we have these rules and regulations from government that restrain us. We have speed limits. We're told to wear our seatbelts. We're commanded not to use our cell phones while driving. Why? To protect us. To restrain us. To maintain order in our lives. But God's word, God's law also displays God's holiness. So the law informs us, but the law also displays God's holiness. God's law in our passage, especially in verses 8, B, 9, and 10, we have kind of a, an exaggerated, grotesque form of the Ten Commandments. But if you read the Ten Commandments, you'll very quickly get a sense of the holiness of God. Thou shalt not have any other God before me. Right? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet Thou shalt keep the Sabbath day. Thou shalt honor thy mother and father. All of these things are to show us God's high standards. And we see this in the Gospels in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus performs the miracle of the fish when the disciples are out fishing. Peter comes and when he realizes that it's Jesus, I love this about Peter, it says, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knee saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. If you love to read the Psalms like I do, David over and over again says, who can stand before the holiness of God? Because the law tells us how holy God is. But thirdly, the law also exposes us. The law exposes us. Paul said in Romans, I would never have known not to covet if the Bible didn't tell me thou shalt not covet. Then I realized that I covet all the time. Now somebody told me I do. Right? And you see this even in children. Children do wrong, but then we tell them it's wrong. Now they know it's wrong. Right? All these things. The law exposes us. It shows us. But what's worse is the law exposes us not just what we do on the outside, but even what we do from the inside. And that's why Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are so important. Because the law will say, Thou shalt not murder. Remember again, the rich young ruler said, All the externals I haven't done. And then Jesus comes along and says, Okay, have you ever been angry? Well, guess what? Guilty. And so a husband can be self-righteous and say, I've never cheated on my wife. And then Jesus comes along and says, yes, but have you ever lusted in your heart or mind towards another? And if you answer yes, then you're an adulterer. And that's why he says in Matthew, right? Out of the heart come the issues of life. (laughs) And you guys know this, right? Try not to read a sign that says, don't read me. And how many of you experience this? You've gone up to that sign that says, don't touch wet paint. I love that one, right? Because you got to, you just it's like a magnet. You're drawn to it to go, I want, is it wet still? And you just want to know if it's tacky or whatever it is. Anything that says don't, we want to do it. But let me ask you this now, and I didn't, I didn't remember to do this. I was going to do this, and I was hoping some kids, were, I, I'm missing my kids that were here. There's James and Becca. I don't have it. But if I had a glass full of water, all right, I had a glass full of water. This is Amy's. I know she, hopefully she won't get too mad at me because I'm doing this. All right. So if I had a, a mug full of water and I'm standing right here and I shake the I shake this and I mean, I really shake it and water goes all over James and Becca. All right. I'm just sh- why did the water come out? Because I'm shaking it. You agree with her? All right. No, that's not why. The water came out because there was water in it to come out. You see. 
how often in life do we do this when we say something hurtful to someone? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. When the truth is, we should say, I'm sorry that I said what I meant. How many times have we said, husbands to wives, you make me so angry. If you didn't do that, I wouldn't become angry. No, the fact that anger is there to come out has nothing to do with your spouse. The anger was in me to come out. This is what the law exposes us to. It, it shows us that we're the problem. Again, G.K. Chesterton, I said this to you guys before. I love this. Uh, in London, a newspaper wanted to know what was wrong with the world, and he writes in and simply says, me, and I'm sorry. That's what the law does. It exposes us. It exposes us to the fact that God's law is unattainable for us. We'll never keep it. Right? We wouldn't know what to covet if the law didn't tell us not to. And that's why, and again, I go back to this. We've heard it. People have said to us, I'm not perfect, but I am a good person. Have you ever had that conversation with someone? I had that conversation yesterday. I'm not perfect, but I'm a good person. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Right? But you know what? This, this is, makes me laugh because to, yet to say that is to admit you're wrong. To say I'm not perfect is to admit I'm not perfect. Well, God is perfect. His law tells us He's perfect. And so it's to own it and admit that my lack of perfection means that I'm lost and deserve it. But that is the law. The law serves this purpose. It condemns us. Again, I talk about Abby. Back when Abby was about 10 years old, we were driving to church one early morning, and I think Debbie was sick, and so it was just Abby and I driving to church, and my Bible was there, and it's this, it's this Bible, which is my big ESV study Bible. It's like four and a half pounds. I've called into Clue, the game, and said, you should, here's a new weapon for you. He did it in the library with the ESV study Bible. Um, and Abby grabbed it, and she had it on her lap, and she was opening it up and reading through it, and she opened it up to Leviticus. And she's reading through Leviticus and, you know, you can't do this. And if she does this and he can't do that and don't do this. And it's two days for this and eight days for that and nine days for this. And she's reading along and I'm just driving and I'm thinking about all types of And then she, all of a sudden I'm aware that she's asking me a question. And she's, Dad, why are all these rules here? And I can't tell you because I had a particularly good fathering moment, likely because my mind was occupied. So I was like, well, why do you think they're there? Largely because I didn't want to try and answer that question. And my 9 or 10-year-old at the time, she looks at me and she goes, Daddy, do you think it's because we're supposed to see just how bad we really need Jesus? And I near went off the road. My 10-year-old got it. The law is meant to show us how badly we need Jesus. It exposes us. Yes, it informs us. Yes, it displays God's holiness. But it also exposes us and we need to be careful well-meaning christians sometimes adopt a narrative of improvement and we use this in place of the gospel we say things like i was worse but now i'm better i i used to be uh, impatient but now i'm patient guys that's the fruit of the gospel that's not the gospel itself and you need to be careful this is where this legalism can come into So what happens if you think in terms of only the results of the gospel but not the gospel? What happens if you had trouble with your anger, you come to Christ, and you say, you know what, I used to be an angry man or I used to be an angry woman, but then I found Jesus and now I'm not angry anymore. Well, that's foolish to even say that. Because then what happens if in a week's time or a month's time or a year's time you, you lose it? Now what do you do? Now what do you do? 
And so often people think now they start to doubt their salvation. Or again, they get defeated and say, why bother? They get delusional and I'll make excuses about it and I hide it. But if you understand that the the fruit of the gospel is not the gospel itself, when you lose your temper post-salvation, you can say something like, wow, I need to run back to Jesus for more reminders of how awesome and amazing He is. What He has done for me, how much He has forgiven me, how He will never be angry with me. And then I can and will be overwhelmed by His love for me so much that it starts to change me. And instead of being totally undone, by your lapse or your failure or your sin, you find safety in running back to Jesus to deal with your sin again. The gospel is not you must become like Jesus. The gospel is Jesus became like you. That's the gospel. That's not to say that Jesus becoming like you doesn't change you. It does. But the gospel is not our transformation. The gospel is Christ's substitution. That's what the gospel is. By, by the way, which in lead turns leads to our transformation. Think of Romans chapter 12 or 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9, right? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But how many times do you look at that and use that for evangelism? You tell someone that's not saved, you know, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's true. But that is not written to unsaved people. That is written to saved people. John is writing to that to Christians who are struggling with the fact that the power of sin has been broken in my life, but the presence of sin is still there. One of the greatest prayers a man ever prayed over me a guy named Perry Edwards, we were in a room and he was praying. And I could never believe, I've never forgotten this prayer. He said, Lord, I thank you that Jesus Christ has cut down the tree of sin in my brother's life. But we pray as Jesus Christ continues to remove the stump of sin that's still there. And I have never forgotten that prayer. See, this is an ongoing thing that we do as Christians. This is what we do. And what's, what's the problem? What had happened at Ephesus is happening in our churches today. You see, listen, the law exposes us, but if the bad news isn't really bad, then how is the good news amazingly good? If the gospel is nothing more than turn over a new leaf, or here's a way to, to pick up yourself by your bootstraps, if it's another just a self-improvement scheme, guys, listen, we got other things we can be doing on a Sunday morning. But if the gospel is so amazingly good because we're so amazingly bad, then we have a reason to get together. And we have a reason to share that with everybody. And you know what? When you make the law your idol, when you don't realize what the law is good for, then what happens is you start to get into your holy huddle. And you start to think that the church is your mission field. I read this week two women, two ladies who professed Christianity. One was in the hospital having surgery. The other was visiting her. They both claimed to be saved. And while they were talking, this nurse comes in. The one woman, the patient who had just had the surgery, was very thankful and very uh, sensitive to the nurse's attention to her. She was attentive to the nurse and kept trying to find a way to share the gospel with her by sharing her personal faith and testimony in Jesus Christ. And after the nurse left, the visiting lady said, you were attempting to witness to her, weren't you? Of which the patient said, yes, of course. And there's what she said. Well, that's good for you, but not for me. I'm not interested in that because God has given me the burden of helping Christians straighten out their lives. 
Now, you nervously laugh, but if you get focused on the law, that's what will happen. A church will get very internal. We get looking at each other. We get evaluating. The expression, I had one of my other pastors, he was from Ireland, he used to use this expression, we just start to navel gaze. Have you ever seen, seen that person that does that? Or especially the kid who all of a sudden discovers they got a belly button and figures out their stuff collects in there? And they just, they just start looking in there and just start playing and trying to see it and pull it apart. That's what Christians do who get focused on the law. You get navel gazing. You get focused on yourself and everybody else. And you don't see. Paul is really saying to Timothy, look, Ephesus has lost its mission field. It's lost its sense of, eva- of evangelism. Are we more about the law than the gospel? And that's why Machen says this, what good does it do me to tell me that the type of religion presented in the Bible is a very fine type of religion, that the thing for me to do is just start practicing that type of religion now? I will tell you, my friend, it does not one tiniest bit of good. What I need, first of all, is not exhortation, but a gospel. Not directions for saving myself, but knowledge of how God has saved me. Have you any good news for me? That is the question that I ask of you. I know your exhortations will not help me, but if anything has been done to save me, will you not tell me the facts? See, the law is good to inform us, to display God's holiness, to expose us, and yes, finally in the Christian life, the law is our guide for imitating Christ. Once you're saved, you're set free from the law. And now we live the law of love takes over. That's what Ephesians 5 and Galatians 5 is all about. Romans 6 to 11 is Paul talking about all the things that the law does. And then he finally breaks into the fact that in Romans chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God based on what God has done. And when you understand the glories of the gospel, the law is not your enemy now. You don't approach the law like, okay, how can I obey it and get it? No, you realize, no, the law tells me more about my Savior. The law exposes more me more to Jesus Christ. It's just like this, okay? And I know I use this, and I know she hates me, and I get rebuked about it every Sunday afternoon. But if, I, if you have a good gospel-centric marriage, I want to get to know Debbie. To get to know Debbie, Debbie tells me things that she likes and doesn't like. Debbie likes to read. So if Debbie tells me, I like to read but I always buy her movies. What good is it that she tells me that she likes to read? I'm not really interested in what she has to say. I'm interested in trying to make Debbie what I want her to be, a movie watcher. But if I'm really in love with Debbie and Debbie tells me that she loves to read, then it becomes my mission in life to find out what she loves to read and where I can buy the books that she likes to read. And with joy, I love to get those books and put them on her nightstand or or get them sent in the mail and wrapping even though I had to order them in or whatever it might be because that gives me great joy. I am finding out. And so I want to do these things. And when you find Jesus Christ, that's why the psalmist said in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The law of the Lord is good, making wise the simple. See, it's different now. Okay, so that's the law, what it does. All right? Now, secondly, let's look at the gospel, what it can and always does. All right? In verses 12 to 15 of our passage, everything changes. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me run through this quickly. Remember that Timothy was to remember and realize he needed to lead this church to be committed to the gospel. Back in verses 1 to 3, he told Timothy, right, Timothy, your faith is legit. 
Remember what the gospel is. Number one, it forgives. The gospel for the law can tell you you need to be forgiven, but it can't forgive you. The gospel forgives you. Acts chapter two, verse thirty-eight: Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. The gospel redeems. The law tells you you need to be redeemed, but the gospel redeems you. Jesus came to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. Right? Titus 2.14, who gave himself to redeem us. That's to set us free. The gospel atones. The gospel atones. Jesus Christ, the atonement for sin. The gospel empowers. You see, the law would tell me, here are all the rules, and you can't keep them. But Jesus Christ, in Christ, and I love this, we're going to have creation ministries here, and I know there are pros and cons to it. There's no perfect parachurch ministry. And I am not a big fan of Ken Ham, but there is a statement that he makes that I love. Ken Ham said that in a 747, there are 6 million parts to a, to a 747 airplane. 6 million parts. Not one of them can fly. But all of them put together flies. All right? You see, by myself, I can't fly. Put me in a plane... And now I can fly. And yet I'm not the one doing it. I just reap all the rewards of that plane. You see, outside of Christ, I can never keep the law. In Christ, I can now be declared righteous. And yet I'm just the recipient of all the benefits. He empowers me to do it. He empowers me to do it. You see, remember Paul has this kind of this kind of argument with himself in Romans chapter 7. He says, the things I know I should do, I find difficult to do. The things I know I shouldn't do, I find easy to do. And he almost gets this pathetic thing and he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me? And if that's where he stopped, we'd have the most pathetic gospel ever. But then he goes right into chapter 8, verse 1. He goes, now, there is therefore no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, when you're in Christ, it empowers you. It transforms us. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. It promises, this is my, I have to say, I try hard not to have like a life verse or a favorite verse because the word of God is just awesome from cover to cover. But one of the verses I often love to read, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. The gospel cures and it purifies. Now the question is how? How does it do it? How does this do this? It's all because of Jesus. All that the law did was tell them what they couldn't do. Something Satan preyed upon, even all the way back to Adam and Eve. But God displayed more and more laws about himself. All of the Leviticus, all of Deuteronomy, filled with all the do's and don'ts, the when's and the when-nots. But all and the only thing the law did was expose our hearts, our inability, our rebellion. But then Jesus, then Paul uses himself as an example. And he says, oh, Timothy, listen. God's given me strength. Christ Jesus saved me and I was the worst of sinners. Notice what he says. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent person. (laughs) Look at how Paul describes himself. The missionary to the Gentiles was first the murderer of the church. And you know what? Again, you know, I showed you that video at the first of it of of Andrew and Philip. And and next week we're going to look at another character because we often don't realize we don't put and we look at paul and we think paul was just a great guy really 
Did you ever notice how Paul describes himself there? A blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent person. You realize this guy signed off on the death certificates of literally not just Stephen, but many people. If you read about him in Acts chapter 8, you read about how he describes himself to Felix and Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. He describes himself as this murderous, hungry villain whose job it was to squelch the church. That's what he, he, he felt it mattered to him. <laughs> if you want to know what it was like in pop culture today, what if Jihadi John on took his veil off and said, I've come to Jesus Christ. And now I'm a believer. The world's most wanted man. What if he got saved? How would we all react? You see, again, you don't know this with your Bible, but if you take Acts chapter 8 and you read over to Acts chapter 9, which is Paul's conversion. And by the way, if you ever read Paul's conversion, here's what the Bible says. Paul is blinded by the presence of God. He's told to go into Damascus and he is to pray. And God goes to this priest named Ananias and he says, go into Damascus for Saul is there and he prays. And Ananias, I love this conversation. Ananias goes, "Um, God, uh, you sure you, you know what you're doing? Like, do you know who Paul is, this dude? Like, he's not a nice guy. Like, if I go to him, I'm likely dead. All right? And no, this is what the Lord says in Acts chapter 9. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the name of my sake. Now go back to Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, because it says, Christ Jesus our Lord judged me faithful, appointing to me through his service, although formerly I was a blasphemer and persecutor and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now Paul is not saying, since I didn't know what I was doing, I got a free pass. Jesus decided to save me. Even the world says ignorance is not an excuse, a defense in regards to the law, right? That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, listen, in spite of the fact that I actually thought me trying to kill every Christian earned me favor with God. I thought I was doing God a favor. You guys have studied this in Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. He says, if you want to do a righteousness comparison test, I, you know, born of the tribe of Benjamin, on the eighth day I was circumcised, the Hebrew of the Hebrews. He says, according to the law, blameless. Now, Paul would be the first one to say he was delusional. He was delusional. Because later on, and again, our Bible cleans things up for us sometimes, or our translators do, because he says, I count all this but loss. Go talk to Steve afterwards if you want to know what that word means, because it's graphic. He's talking about the stuff that your dog does out on the lawn. That's what he's saying. I count it all as dog do. All right? That's as politically correct and refined as I can go, all right, and not be vulgar. That's what Paul is saying. Every attempt I've made. But he says, I did this. I actually thought my, I, my murderous, persecuting, insolent ways was righteous. And can you believe it? God still saved me. In summary, Paul's testimony tells us a bunch about God's gospel, doesn't it? The gospel is both universal and personal. He says, listen, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's universal. Of whom I'm the worst one. That's personal. But then he says it's both unconditional Jesus saved me. I didn't deserve it. I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't searching for him. But God saved me. He was merciful to me. But it's also purposeful. Why did he save Paul? 
to become a spokesman of the gospel. And so finally, you have Jesus Christ, who he is and why it matters. Notice verse 16 one final time. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to everyone who were to believe in him for eternal life. Have you ever remembered Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin. Now, again, don't assume you know it. Notice, look at the words on the screen. Lay aside every weight and sin, which means some stuff you and I are going to lay aside is not sin. Sometimes it's just stuff that's robbing us of our pursuit of Christ. See, often we think, well, if it's sin, I need to get rid of it. No, no, no. Here the author says, lay aside anything, anything that robs you of your passion for Jesus. And it might not even be wrong. I love sports. I love hockey. But if hockey robs me of my pursuit of Christ, I should lay it aside. All right? Which clings so, and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race. Notice the word endurance. It's the same Greek basic word of the idea of patience. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. How? Look to Jesus. Do you want to know the difference between law and gospel? Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. It amazes me. I love pop culture. I love it as well. I'm fascinated when the world gets what the church should get, and we don't. Clint Eastwood's Western, just in the last few years, unforgiven. All right? At the end of it, it sells William Money, right? You hear about William Money. He, was, he raped and murdered women and children, and he shot this and all this. And as the credits roll up over this single grave, it says, but the love of a woman made him a better man. It amazes me. In the movie, As Good As It Gets, with Jack Nicholson, I, I saw this scene on and Helen Hunt, the actress, she's a waitress, and they have this most dysfunctional of relationships. And, and this guy is selfish and self-centered. He's so self-absorbed, and they're at the restaurant, and she's just telling him off, and she says, I'm going to leave you. You're pathetic. You better say something good, or I'm walking out of here. And all he can do is say, you make me want to be a better man. And she gets all tear-filled, and she's like, that's the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me. You see, if you get the gospel, you don't have to be a better person. You want to be a better person because you're overwhelmed by God's love for you. And it changes you profoundly. How is it that the world can get it, but we can't? We should not only get this, but we need to apply it to our lives. So we should be saying, listen, I have found God, and God, you've saved me to be a better man. God has saved me to be a better man. And then in the last verse, verse 17, to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, Paul just bursts into praise, the God of power and sovereignty over all the affairs of men and angels, immortal, invisible. And so as I now need to close, and you've been so patient, or at least you've acted so patient, do you see the law as something that you can use to justify yourself? Do you see the law as something that spells out your doom and so you don't bother to try it all? In other words, are you defeated or delusional by the law today? And are you willing to wrestle with that? Both are tragic. Both left to themselves will damn you and both will leave you hopeless, helpless, and condemned. 
But if you will see the law for what it's meant to be, informative, restraining, and sanctifying, you will then be on the road to redemption. For you can cry out like me, Lord, save me. Lord, I need you. Lord, I can't. Lord, I'm not worthy. Lord, forgive me. Lord, I need mercy. Or as the old Southern Gospel song says, where could I go but to the Lord? Once you've looked in the law, and then you can cry out, save me. We can own what we are and what we were and what we could never do because you're never going to earn God's favor. The law cannot save us, but the law can bring us to Christ who can and will save us. The law will tell you only one thing. You can't, you didn't, and you won't. The gospel will tell you only one thing as well. Jesus came, he did, and he saves. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left the crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Christ's perfection is our greatest hope. Because Christ was perfect, he was able to die for us, to live for us, took our place. He is the way, the only way to be right with God. So, for those of you that claim to be Christians, what's your testimony here this morning? What's your testimony? Jesus Christ, the pure Son of God, holy, 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 stooped down, dirtying himself with my sin, lived for me, died for me, rose again for me, came to me to save me. Why? Because I needed to be saved. Why? Because you need to be saved. (laughs) And once you understand who you are and who Christ is, once you've tasted salvation, and I mean this, once you've really tasted grace, the gospel, once the law has hammered out all your pride, your excuses, your attempts at self-righteousness, then and only then, on the 50th anniversary of Selma, may I evoke the words of Dr. King. When you have really tasted the gospel, you well say, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty. I am free at last because he's more than amazing. Let's close in prayer and sing this song one more time. Father God, I thank you for your graciousness. And Lord, again, I plead with you. For Father, when I preach, this is where I am most tempted to stop practicing what I preach. I am most tempted to worry about how I did I am most tempted to worry about the thoughts of people. And it's, Lord, that it's not that I know you don't call me to be sensitive to my brothers and sisters here, their time schedules, the demands upon their lives. But, Father, I pray that I will practice what I preach by running to you right now and finding my value and worth in you. And so, Lord, I evoke the words of a dear friend who once said, I pray that these people have heard a better sermon than has been preached because the gospel was in it, your word was read, and your word is powerful. I pray for any man or woman here who is struggling with the law, legalism, trying to earn their way in with you, trying to keep or maintain their salvation. Father, trying to uh, feel good about themselves by being condescending over others, that you would free them from it. I pray for any man or woman here who's searching, who doesn't know if they're saved, that they'd have the, the, the courage, the wherewithal to come and ask and find a willing ear. I pray for us as a church, oh, Father God, that we would be a church about the gospel. We would love the law, but we would depend upon Jesus Christ. We would want to be holy, but we find our value and identity by being in Christ who makes us holy. For truly, Lord, 
Indeed, you are more than amazing. In Jesus' name, and all God's people say it.